From the Gospel, the 11th chapter of St. Matthew, these words, Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect another? This is our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, giants fall. And sometimes when giants fall, they fall very mightily. They fall hard, whether they're biblical giants like Goliath or political giants like so many of the politicians that we've seen in the past decade or two fall of both political parties. Or sports greats, like Tiger Woods. And when they do fall, it leaves a lot of people wondering whether they'll be able to pick up the pieces and be all that they were again, or all that they were expected and thought to be. As columnist Scott McCow recently wrote of Tiger Woods and the mess that he's gotten himself into, he said, For all his gifts, Woods' greatest weapon in his arsenal of dominance has been his will. His mental strength has steered him clear of every obstacle that's been thrown in his way, including countless assumed and discarded rivals. Two swing changes didn't stunt him. Three surgeries barely slowed him down. Marriage and fatherhood had no immediate effect on his win rate. His father's death seemed to fuel another gear after a brief period of mourning. The presumed weight of unprecedented expectations couldn't deter his mission to win the Tiger Slam in golf. And now we have a wounded Tiger, but the injuries aren't at all what we expected. The -the run-of-the-mill bumps and bruises and breaks have been inconsequential. The self-inflicted trauma, however, might cut woods much deeper than anyone thought that he could experience. This sordid situation has clearly caught Woods off stride, unlike all of his previous challenges. This was something he seemed utterly unprepared for. You need only listen to him in that disturbing voicemail to his alleged mistress to tell just how out of sorts this ordeal has made his previously charmed life. We've never heard that voice from him. It was desperate. It was stammering. It was confused. It was scared. Unquote. Will Tiger Woods be able to come back from this self-inflicted trauma, as this particular sports writer calls it? Who knows? There's a lot of doubt. Doubt that can shake up the most faithful fans and the most faithful followers of Woods. And it happens. Not only to those who, on the basis of of their own wrong choices and their own sins, are doubted by their fans and by their followers, but sometimes it happens to those who have done absolutely nothing wrong, but simply don't seem to live up to everything that we think they should be. A case in point, look at John the Baptist in our text for today. A clear case of disappointments, a clear case of doubts on the part of John, which result from his beginning to misunderstand what it was that the Christ was all about who had come. What the promised Messiah was saying and what he was doing, if Jesus really is the Messiah, John begins to think. Why isn't he doing more than he's doing? 
Why isn't he saying things differently than what he's saying them? And pondering these questions far too long, he finally sends one of his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you really the one who is to come or should we be expecting another? That's an amazing question that he sends, isn't it? Here, John the Baptist is that very man who, as even a tiny unborn babe in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, leapt for joy, Scripture says. He leaped for joy when Mary, carrying within her womb, our Lord Jesus Christ comes and visits Elizabeth, John's mother, and John leaps in his womb for joy. This man who had undoubtedly a prenatal faith a fetal faith, now finds himself wondering. Now he finds himself doubting. This very man who both St. Matthew and Mark tell us was clad in camel's hair and standing in the wilderness and shouting out at the top of his voice, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This very man who was preparing the way for Christ by preaching repentance and by baptizing sinners in the river Jordan for the forgiveness of their sins, Scripture says. This man who paused in the midst of all of this when he saw Jesus approaching and he appointed, or he appointed to Jesus and he said of him, Behold, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This man of such phenomenal faith, this man who Jesus speaks of himself and says that he is a prophet of prophets, the likes of which there has not risen anyone greater than he. Such a commendation from our Lord in the gospel for today. And now this man, this man foretold of old, finds himself doubting. Doubting the identity of the one in whom his whole life was invested that voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, now hesitates. And we see it halt. And then we hear it whisper, are you the one who was to come? Are we supposed to be expecting another? John knew by heart, you know, all of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. There wasn't a one that he didn't know. John could count every star of prophetic promise in the, in the skies. But then after introducing Christ to the world, which John did, he comes to this point and to this place in his life where he finds himself asking, is, is, is this it? Are you the one? What happened? What brought this giant of the faith to his knees in this pondering perplexity? What turned this man of such high resolve, and this man of iron, we might even say, in faith, to sound like such a wimp of wavering uncertainty. What factors, playing tricks with his sinful human nature, which he had in common with us all, led John to doubt? Well, our text identifies two factors in the life of John that were instrumental in bringing this doubt about. Two of the real-life factors that are so often instrumental in bringing doubt into our own lives. Because we are the sinners that we are, the circumstances of the fallen world around us sometimes lead us ourselves to that point also of doubting even as John did. What are those factors in our lives? Well, one of the real-life factors is our circumstances. 
Where are we in our lives at that point in time when we're doubting and what's happening to us at the time? Look at John's circumstance. The text begins by saying, Now when John in prison heard, there John was sitting in this prison of King Herod, a rat-infested prison to be sure. Why? Because he had had the intestinal fortitude to stand up and speak out against the sexual immorality that was taking place there in Jerusalem in the highest of places. He had the guts to publicly charge the king with adultery. Not that it hadn't happened before. It had happened a thousand years before that when the prophet Nathan, you'll recall, came into the palace of the king named David and he pointed right at David and said, you are the man who was guilty also of committing adultery. But in that case, you'll recall that David, having been told of this very sin that he had committed and having been approached with it, then confessed his sin and he immediately received absolution. But King Herod was not that type of a king, nor that kind of a man that would give any kind of heed to the word even of God. He was hard-hearted. He had disdain not only then for the message, but also for the messenger who brought it. And Herod was determined to have his way with him, and certainly his wife's daughter was, and so John was incarcerated. John was in prison, and in due time John would ceremoniously be beheaded. But now, prior to that time, he sits there alone, time passes, and as it begins to pass in the prison cell in which he's sitting, he thinks to himself, what now is to become of me? What'll happen? This isn't what I thought it would be. I was the voice crying in the wilderness, even it was prophesied of old. I was that voice prophesied of old, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And now undiscerning rats are my only audience, and silence is my only song, my life's mission, my life's goal. Everything that I did for the first 30 years of my life was preparing me for this moment and for this task. Could it be over so quickly? Is God done with me now so soon? Or perhaps my timing was wrong. If it has been, then I may well have misidentified the Messiah. Is he the one? Or should we be expecting another? Imagine the haunting doubts that must have terrorized in the prison cell the soul of John. Doubts about himself, doubts about his purpose, doubts about his work, the most troubling of all, unfounded doubts about Christ, who had fulfilled everything that Scripture said that he would, even as we heard in the Old Testament lesson today, that he'd heal the sick and he'd raise the dead. He caused the lame to walk, and Jesus fulfilled all of these things. But still, John, because of his circumstances, because of sin within, Living in a sinful world around, John doubts. Oh, how the circumstances of life can trouble faith, and it's happened to us all, all too often, hasn't it? Like Peter walking along smartly because the same thing happened with Peter, and he's so confident he's walking out there on the waters of Galilee on his way to Jesus. And so we too so often march along so confidently in life, on top of life, when the waters are calm and when they're undisturbed, but then let the winds blow. And let the 
the waves swell and let them surge about us and we like Peter anxiously take our eyes off Christ we begin to sink and we start crying out ourselves in doubt Lord would you allow us to perish because our ankles get wet and our knees are soaked and our waist is in water and we're up to our necks in water and then we begin wandering and doubting whether or not the Lord really does indeed care even like the disciples did in their storm-tossed boat as they came to Jesus sleeping in the stern on another occasion and said, Don't you care, Lord, that we perish? Doubters all. Isn't that what often happens? When the adverse circumstances of life succeed in drawing our eyes away from Christ so that they focus instead upon the things of the world, even the troubles and the adversities of life, and we focus on those rather than upon Christ, and doesn't that get us into trouble? Isn't that what causes us then to doubt Christ? Circumstances will do that, just like they did for John in prison, just like they did for Peter in the water, or for the disciples in the boat. Ask those who suddenly find in life that their financial security is falling to pieces because They've lost their jobs, or a huge portion of what they've put away for retirement, whatever it might be, has suddenly fallen between the cracks because of the economic troubles of the time. Ask them if the circumstances of life don't work to play tricks on faith and cause them to doubt. Ask those whose homes that were once so sturdy and strong when love was young and new are now being dismantled piece by piece by struggle and strife until finally you have a man and a woman and their children that are sitting in different houses and in different places outside of their war-torn home and they suddenly find themselves looking at a distance at each other and thinking to themselves what's become of us what went wrong Where do we go from here, and who's going to go there with us? Since circumstances in this fallen world try faith. Ask the man or woman who, who's just been told that their cancer is inoperable, and it's just a matter of time. Or ask the middle-aged mother of teenage children whose husband dies unexpectedly of a heart attack. Or ask the parents whose son or daughter is taken from them suddenly in an accident or by war, or by some act of violence in Oakland, or even something closer to us, or by an act of terrorism someplace. Ask them if life circumstances can trouble faith even as it did for John the Baptist sitting alone in Herod's prison knowing what he was likely to face. Asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Faith, St. John says, and not John the Baptist, but the other John, St. John. Faith, St. John says, is the victory that overcomes this world. But when we take our eyes off the object of our faith, Jesus, then we can so easily find ourselves living under the circumstances of life rather than above them. And that brings us to the second factor in life that so often leads us sinfully to certain doubts about Christ, and that's wrong expectations of Jesus. And so our text says, when John in prison heard the works of Christ, when John in prison, circumstances, heard the works of Christ, 
They didn't match up necessarily with his expectations. And so he, he sends word by his disciples to Jesus saying, Are you the one? Or do we expect another? Because of the works of Jesus. They baffled John. John, remember, was this fiery preacher. Repent as we've seen the kingdom of God is at hand. You brood of vipers, he called the Pharisees, who warned you to escape from the wrath that is to come. The axe, he said, is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that beareth not good fruit shall be cut down and thrown into the fire. A fiery preacher whose words melted more than one heart of stone. And then after all of that fiery preaching and right preaching, indeed, of the law of God, every word which was true, then along comes Jesus. And he doesn't have that same fire as John. But he speaks of forgiveness, and he speaks of healing, and he speaks of comforting, and this, this Jesus who is already talking about his death and about his dying. Where the winnowing fork in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff, where his unquenchable fire, where that surge of divine power by which he's going to, to purge this earth of all of its evil, where's that Messiah? You see, John's preaching was right, but John's timing was a bit wrong. He had momentarily forgotten that Jesus had a world to save before Jesus would have a world to judge. He had to first come as the Prince of Peace, as he does at Christmas, reconciling the whole world unto himself through a cross upon which he would die for us, before he would come in time as the king of kings at the end of time to judge that world. Before he works to right all the world's wrongs, which he indeed will, our Lord Jesus had to work to make the sinner right with God. Because that's why the Father had sent him. And because he did. Because Jesus did exactly as the Father had sent him to do. We need not fear what he will say or do when he comes again to judge me and you at the end of time. You see, he came first in his saving grace to occupy the cross of our sins, that through his sin forgiving and through his life giving word and sacraments right here today, he would be able to deliver to us all the benefits of that cross, covering us with his righteousness, taking our sins upon himself. First things first, first he works to right the sinner's soul well before he works to right the sinner's world. Both happen, but each happens in its own hour. Each happens in its own time. But today is the day of the soul's salvation. The time and the day will come when the body too, being raised from the earth, will finally be and totally be saved as well. So don't expect what our Lord has not promised for your life right here and now. Contrary to the false prophets, the the prophets of the prosperity gospel of our day, Jesus has not promised material wealth and prosperity to all who believe in him. Contrary to the false prophets of health and healing, he hasn't promised perfect physical health here and now to all who believe in him. He hasn't promised 
trouble-free and pain-free and sickness-free and struggle-free and strife-free lives in the here and now to those who believe in him. In this world, in fact, he has said, you will have tribulation. But take courage, he says, because I have overcome this world. That trouble-free life that we long for will have its day. But that day is not yet. Not here and now. That day is yet to be. And that day will most certainly be. It'll be when he who came as our kin comes again as our king. Until then, ours is not to wait and doubt and doubt him about it all. Like John in prison, ours is to be moved, and he was, by the word of Christ that came back to him. He was moved from his doubt back to his faith again, focusing his eyes on Jesus, even when he was yet in prison. That faith that knows, even as John's faith would, that whatever circumstances God allows to be, he is at work through it all for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. You've all heard the story of Senator John McCain and the years that he spent in the Vietnamese prison cell in which he spent so much time. And perhaps because of the last political season, we heard it a few times over. Some of you may also heard a story about a Captain Gerald Coffey. Today, he's one of the 10 top motivational speakers in the country. He goes all over the place, and he's well-known by so many, a U.S. Naval officer who spent seven years in a prison camp as a POW in Vietnam. It was during a second Christmas alone in a three-by-seven-foot hellhole of a prison cell that the then-Lieutenant Coffey learned the lesson which John learned in his prison cell in Jerusalem. Stripped of everything by which he had come in his life to measure his identity, and stripped of it for so long, stripped of his rank, and stripped of his uniform and his family, his friends, stripped of his money, his wealth, his things, and increasingly even stripped of his physical appearance and health and stamina and strength, stripped of it all by his captors, removed by his circumstances from all commercial distractions and all social obligations, which had also required so much of him during the Christmas season, on a typical Christmas season, coffee, on the second Christmas that he had in that little three-by-seven-foot cell, thought anew about the significance of the season as he'd really never thought of it before. Stripped of so much by his circumstances, even not having the strength to remember previous Christmases very well, he could remember in his weakness one thing. He remembered, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And he remembered what the word Emmanuel meant, that it meant God with us. And he thought that. God became a child, the child they called Emmanuel, God with us. And he thought God with us even in a three-by-seven-foot cell. God with us. And he celebrated Christmas anew in the hardest of circumstances because faith created and sustained by the word of God is faith and the victory over the world. And it's true. It was true for John. 
It's true for me. It's true for you. When God is with us, no matter what the circumstances of life might be, when God is with us, all is eternally well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.